Beyond the Pelvis is hosted by Dr. Keneal Siegel, a pelvic floor PT and intuitive healer, and Laura Haraka, a somatic practitioner and breathwork facilitator. Each week, we explore alternative and holistic approaches to healing chronic pelvic pain and other painful or chronic conditions. Join us and other experts in mind, body, and spiritual healing as we discuss a wealth of modalities ranging from ancient practices to modern therapies that challenge the conventional Western model of treatment. Let's get right to it. So I'm so excited to introduce to everyone today, Charlie Merrill. Charlie is a physical therapist and the founder of Merrill Performance in Boulder, Colorado. He has synthesized treatment of the mind and body for over 20 years to support people returning to high-level performance in their lives. He also co-created the course Beyond Pain Education with Dr. Howard Schubner to mentor and educate clinicians who traditionally use a body-oriented approach to transition toward a more psychosocially informed approach to pain and function. He also serves on the medical advisory board for the Better Mind Center, as well as on the team of Lynn Health. So Charlie, we're so happy and excited to have you here with us today to share your perspectives of the mind-body approaches you use, but to specifically talk about the pelvis. So- Yes, thank you the, for the introduction. I'm so excited to be here talking with you too about this yeah. topic specifically, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't get enough attention sometimes. So we wanna make it less taboo and easy for people to talk about. So before we start, if you could, you know, just share a little bit about yourself, who you are today, maybe, you know, why you became a PT and how you got into this mind-body space. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm about 25 years in clinical practice now. And I like to say I was raised on sort of the old manual therapy approach to treating pain. So think um, manipulation, trigger point needling, corrective exercise, you know, the sort of hands-on. I, I love problem solving. The reason I got into it is because I love problem solving. I love to work with my hands. I, I really enjoy working with people and getting to know people. And so um, it was, I was mentored by people who are really good at it. And so I was, it was a really natural fit for me. And for the first half of my career, I was just so excited to be doing this work and like fixing bodies, as I say. Um, and and you know, working with people to figure out why their biomechanics were faulty, and you know, making up stories about how this trigger point and this movement fault, and you know, this joint being stiff was the cause of their pain, and and it worked really well, I think, because people had a better understanding of why they hurt, and they felt like they had a solution, and if we had a good relationship, um, good therapeutic alliance, they felt safe, and voila, right, it's magic. But there was a point about halfway to my career where I was just realizing that like it wasn't helping everybody. Some people weren't responding the way I expected them to respond. And um, I read John Sarno's book in my twenties when I had my own bout of back pain, which is a whole other story, but it was really helpful to me. And I think I carried that, that mindset of fear being the driver of pain, right? Into my practice. And so I always had sort of a more hopeful, like things can heal. And I always, I think also had this sense that emotions were important. 
although as a young man, I didn't really have my own emotional awareness, I don't think, to be able to bring that into to practice at that time. And there was a point where I was like, gosh, I wonder if anybody's taken John Sarno's work and like expanded it clinically, right? Because I feel like I'm missing something. I've done all this manual therapy training. I feel like I'm, I'm at my limit of what I can do with that at this point. And of course, you know, I realized as time went on that that a lot of those things that I learned in school, unfortunately, weren't weren't true, weren't the full truth, let's say. So anyway, I I just immersed myself in the world of pain psychology, essentially. And I started almost at that side of the continuum. And at the same time, the world of pain science from our colleagues from the physical therapy world was kind of exploding. And so it was really a nice point in history to be taking taking on this work. And yeah, as soon as, as you know, as both of you know, once you see it, you can't unsee it. So I had like a, like an, oh, like an, oh crap moment of like, you know, I, I can't go back to the old reality anymore. Like I've seen the truth and, and, and that was exciting and scary and took a lot of unlearning, let's just say. So yeah, here we are. I think that was the first part of your question. What did I miss? I think you did cover all of it. How you came to PT and how you ended up in the mind-body space. Two things really stuck out to me. I thought it was interesting and and also a little funny that you mentioned that you learned to make up stories about people's trigger points <laughs> and <laughs> dysfunction. Physical dysfunctions were the cause of their pain, but you eventually noticed that it wasn't helping everyone. And that's that's where it started for me. And I'm, uh, I still consider myself a newer PT, even though I graduated, you know, seven, eight years ago, but I still found myself going through the, a similar thing that you did. I noticed it didn't help everyone. And then I noticed that I had to unlearn a lot of the things that I learned in PT school. And I also discovered John Sarno because I, I specifically thought, well, I can't be the only one thinking these thoughts about people's emotions or stress or trauma affecting their physical pain. And I went looking for something, some sort of protocol to treat pain in, in a different kind of way. And that's when I stumbled upon John Sarno. And then I started finding more and more people. And although I also learned about the physical therapists who were in the pain psychology space, and you mentioned that was a long time ago, I feel like we're still in that, that time period where the information's out there, but it's not transferring to clinical care unfortunately. Yeah, so. I agree. I, I feel like it's catching fire right now. Like it's really catching on, but of course I live in this world all the time. So I think my perspective is a little bit skewed. Um, when you go out into the real world and talk to people, it's like I'm speaking a different language sometimes. So I definitely have to remind myself of that because I'm so immersed in it. Yeah. It's easy once you're in it to feel like, oh yeah, everyone's, everyone's finally got it. <laughs> then you realize, oh no, there are still a ton of people who aren't <laughs> doing that. Why do you think that's the case? Gosh, I mean, you know, the old Descartes model is how we were all raised, I think, probably until this generation, right? Like young kids now, hopefully are going to be learning something different. But it's just historical, you know, fact for a lot of people that pain equals tissue damage. And I, I always have to step back and appreciate how hard it was for me to come around as a clinician, and just accept this, this big idea, this paradigm shift. So I always have to be patient. And I'm, I find myself, you know, needing to be patient with people as they shift their belief because it's not an easy shift at all. 
and people have a lot of doubt and they have a lot of questions and they have a lot of resistance and, you know, uncertainty to this idea. And I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm empathic to that because I still feel like I wrestle with it sometimes in my head. I'm, you know, I have so much conditioning on the biomedical model with my training and so much of my career being immersed in that, that, uh, that I, I still wrestle with things. Like if I learn a new bit of information, I say, gosh, how am I going to get that to fit? Like, how do I reconcile that? Right with what I know now, and and is that really true? And and I get is that going to be useful to me? Is that going to be useful to my clients? Um, so it's a constant process still. Um, we'll come back. I think we'll dive a little bit deeper into that. But I'm just curious. I mean, you sort of mentioned it in the bio to Laura, and you mentioned it, Charlie, too, about who you're treating. But tell us a little bit more about who you are treating, and what are you most passionate about helping those individuals, and why. Yeah, I, it's a good question. I, I used to have definitely more of a specialty than I have now. I, I think I told you before we started, like, I, I, I really, I really enjoy treating everybody because pain is such a normal human phenomenon. It affects all of us. And so I, as I started to see the range of diagnoses, right, that that show up, the brain can produce any symptom it wants to get our attention. I, I was actually becoming less and less specialized. And so instead of just treating pain, I was treating all kinds of symptoms and all kinds of people from all different walks of life. And I really find that it sort of rejuvenated my excitement for practice rather than being sort of niched down. That said, I, I, I really have a mission right now to get this message out to athletes, um, partly because I am one and I've seen how much it's you know improved my performance and it's improved my joy of sport. And, and partly because that's a group that has even a stronger bias towards the body is broken or damaged or old or worn out, right? And so I'm hoping that I can really talk, speak to that group from my own perspective, um, having been involved in sport for most of my life. The, the pelvic floor work is interesting because, um, you know, I learned to dry needle like 20 years ago. I was like the first cohort in Colorado when it was when it was legalized for PTs to do that intervention. And pretty shortly there, you know, I went through like level one, level two, level three. I was so excited that we had this new modality where we could release trigger points. And I don't know, it just, it was really powerful at the time. And then pretty shortly thereafter, they started to come up with ways to needle the pelvic floor. And my first reaction was like, that's not for me. I'm not doing that. No, thank you. Like other people can do that. I'm happy with needle. I, I'll, I'll needle anything else in the body, right? The jaw, the face, the hands, the feet, you know, I, but the pelvic floor, like, no, thank you. I, that's for some other clinician, some other specialist. And that, you know, that it was great because there were so many great clinicians like you coming into the field, doing that work. And I always stayed separate from it. There was like one thing that I really didn't treat that often. And as I learned more about it, I realized it wasn't just about treating that part of the body that you got to look at the low back and the hips and like it's a more of a global system of course but as I got into the mind-body field like you said I realized what a missing niche that was and it's really just another symptom right just like fatigue or insomnia or like these are just other expressions of the nervous system being in a state of danger alarm so I sort of gave myself permission to say, I think I can help. I think I can support people with these symptoms, and I don't even have to get involved with that part of the anatomy. Like that was really liberating for me as a clinician. And while I don't think it's it's it'll be a specialty of mine, I really feel good about being able to sort of join you all, right, in in this like 
this these treating these symptoms it's so needed it's such a missing missing niche right now we need more people doing it yeah we definitely do we definitely do so i'm just curious you know we know that the pelvic pain is the same as any other type of pain we have to treat it with this mind body approach but i'm just curious if you see a lot of patients with pelvic pain i wouldn't say a lot i would say i always have a few cases on my caseload at any given time um, mix in with all the other symptoms that I treat. And in that way, you know, when it comes to like problem solving and making, making an evidence list for why this is the, you know, why this is the, the nervous system that's in a state of danger alarm, really, it's very similar to treating any other symptom in a lot of ways. Of course, it's a much more intimate part of the body. It tends to connect more with themes of intimacy um, the, the emotions and the, the, the history for, for individuals can be really different from like an athlete dealing with Achilles pain or something like that. Right. The, the, so the themes can be much more sensitive, uh, but, but in, in a lot of ways, um, it's, again, it's just remembering that the brain can produce any symptom it wants to get a person's attention. It almost allows you to focus in on like why this part of the body Right. I'm always asking myself that question. Why did it start now or whenever it started? Like, what was the trigger? Why, why in that time of your life? And why did your brain choose this part of your body to get your attention? And I think there's a lot of meaning there, as you two can probably speak to even better than I can. There's so much symbolism in the pelvic floor. Um, it's the first thing that I always go to, like when I see someone that has urinary problems, like who's pissing you off or, you know, <laughs> rectal pain, who's a pain in the ass in your life. It is, it is so symbolic. And, you know, the other way I see it is such a protective mechanism. You know, this pain can come to protect you. Your brain sends this signal as protection and this pain can help you actually even though it makes you fearful, be safe from the outside world. No question. So I'm just curious, do you see differences with, um, and this can be a tough question, going to be a little careful asking it, just any differences in the commonalities you see with people with chronic pelvic pain in men and women that you treat? Yeah, I, I have actually three men on my caseload right now that are dealing with pelvic pain. One has rectal pain, one, um, one has scrotal pain, and then one has more of sort of what I'd say is a general presentation of pelvic floor pain with some erectile dysfunction and urinary stuff. M men tend to be really analytical and really want to know the science. Like they don't, they don't want to get into the emotional content right away. And so we spend a lot of time, like, I, I don't want to say stuck on the step, but like really working with their resistance on wanting to understand the science of it, to trust that, that, that it's okay to do that. One of these clients, I mean, all of these clients have already gone through so much, right? They, they've gone through so many medical tests and so many treatments to try to fix it and to solve it. And, and that's nice when people arrive at the office, having already done a lot of that legwork. One of my clients would has a multi-million dollar rule out and has seen so many people. I've never seen someone do so much due diligence and yet still sort of needs support in shifting belief about the fact that this could be due to the brain. In the absence of a problem with the body, it's so hard to believe because as you know, all pain is real. And so it, it doesn't feel any different if you had an actual injury to your rectum right in this case um 
so yeah, uh, I, I find that's one difference. I think it's as a as a male, right? Especially as a white male, like it's sensitive talking about this with women from the beginning. And so I I uh, I sort of I sort of let the patient guide the process a little bit and try to make it as collaborative uh, collaborative as I can. Just remembering that our our patients have all the answers to a lot of these questions. And my job is to sort of guide them to find their own answers instead of me like telling them what's wrong or, you know, being, I don't don't need to be in charge of the process necessarily. So, and I I do that generally with a lot of my patients, just sort of let them guide the process and offer them a menu of things. And, and, you know, what do you think? What, What do you think we should do? Where should we go? What resonates for you? What feels true for you? You know, I, I, I used to make up stories, as I say, I used to be really good about being like, let me tell you this story about why your back hurts. And, um, and I try to avoid that now, but yeah, it definitely just takes a, it takes a level of sensitivity with, with any gender talking about these issues. But I do find that women in general tend to be a little more comfortable and a little more in touch talking about the emotional content, but you, you two do this more than I do. So I'm curious to hear what you would say. Yeah, you hit the nail right on the head. Um, with my male clients, most of them want to know the science. I will spend hours going over the science and then going over it again and again and again. Uh, yeah. And I spend time between session thinking about ways I can say it a different way <laughs> to try mm-hmm. to convince them. And they'll say to me, nope, it's not the emotional stuff. I don't even want to do that homework because it just takes them a little longer to get there sometimes, but that's yeah, okay. Totally. I'm glad you said that the the part about having to repeat things, it's really hard to learn. You know, we know this when people are in pain and it's another thing that I always have to remind myself of is that I might've told you, I might've shared this with this person five times from five different directions. And, um, and you just have to be really patient because you know it's going to get through eventually, you know it's going to stick. And then when it sticks, it like really sticks for people. So I love that you're practicing in between, like how can I share this in a different way with a different metaphor? Like that's such a skill as a clinician. Exactly, exactly. Because I find for me, um, and I don't know about you, Canel, if you find this, most, most of my clients will say to me, but I can feel a spot that hurts. I can feel a spot that hurts. So how could that be from my brain? And I, you know, try to explain how when we have a heightened nervous system, it causes tension in the body and can produce our tissues to get tighter and contract and things like that. But sometimes it does take multiple times and multiple ways to explain something for someone for it to click. Yeah, I feel like pain education is so important. We have to teach that. Uh, to our patients. And yeah, we do have to repeat that quite often because that's how learning occurs is with repetition. And Laura, as you mentioned, in different ways, we have to explain it in so many different ways of showing them the same thing because, you know, neuroplasticity, how are we going to increase or influence neuroplasticity if we are not repeating it? And we've all, all three of us have had to unlearn things that we learned in the past. And we're professionals. We are the experts. We are the professionals professionals we've had to unlearn and now we have to get or we have to influence I guess the patient to unlearn as well so it's going to take some time so yeah the repetition is really important and I also don't want to be stereotypical about men here as well because I'll be a hundred percent honest it took me a long time to learn I was more in that category of okay I need it said to me 
500 times right. in order for it to sink in. So I was more in that category. So it can be reversed too. It doesn't have to be so cut and dry. So black and white on men, it takes a lot longer and women, it doesn't too, but it's just more of the norm that we're seeing, I think. <laughs> I think part for of the sure. reason why it does take generally, you know, obviously we're we're all generalizing right now, but one of the reasons why I believe it is more difficult or t- maybe takes longer for men to accept the whole mind-body approach is because of the society that we live in. You know, masculinity is analytical, no emotions, don't let nobody see that, you know, hide it away, tuck it away kind of thing, because they always have to be ready to fight or protect or whatever it is. It's this toxic masculinity just spills over into everything whereas women were expected you know generalizing again we're we're expected to be emotional because we just are we're naturally emotional whereas no we're all emotional beings it's just we tell some people it's okay to be emotional and others we tell it's not okay to be emotional so that's a big thing to unlearn and I think that's part of the reason why we notice a difference between men versus women. Yeah, for sure. And of course, there are, there are outliers, right? There are some men that come in and right away, they're ready to talk about the emotional content or they've already done a lot of that work. And it's amazing when you get that client, how quickly things can progress um, when, when they, they're ready to hit the ground running in that way. So yeah, it's not not all men, not all women. I Anytime I make a rule, I get in trouble. I find yeah. myself like, oh, right. Why did, why did I make that rule? It's meant to be broken. Well, I think we could apply the the very common physical therapy rule with this is it depends. <laughs> right? right. You Always. say that quite a bit for things. It de- well, it depends. So same thing here. <laughs> it depends on the person. Always. Always. <laughs> Always. Yeah. So do you notice any challenges when you're wait- working with patients who come in and maybe they don't have the mind body on the radar and you have to sort of explain this to them like how do you show them that it's more biopsychosocial or mind body versus you know it's the trigger point it's the joint it's this being that way that's causing your pain like how do you work around that yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's a really important part of the process. I mean, I more and more people come to see me because they know that I do this work. So I don't have to start at the very beginning. When I was earlier, I in my in, in doing this, I had to really take the time to to almost, you know, warn people beforehand what they were getting into. And I still I, I'll do a discovery call with someone and make sure that they understand that this is what they're getting. And this is just how the world is, right? With the world is round, like we know that. This is how pain works. Pain is biopsychosocial, spiritual. Like, you know, people people always say, like, I, I need to buy in or I, I need to like, like, it's not really a time to buy in. Like, this is just the reality. This is the truth. So hopefully that that makes people feel a little bit reassured that they're not having to shift into something that's kind of out there, you know, but that's just the way people see it still. The the evaluation process for me is really powerful in terms of showing people that. The, these old stories about mobility and stability and strength and, and trigger points, showing them that that's, that doesn't tell the tale. And so I, I do spend a lot of time physically evaluating people and showing them that their body is okay, that there's no difference between the two sides. Real-time busting myths about even things other clinicians have said to them over the course of time. And then letting them know, like, 
I've seen a lot of bodies. I've seen a lot of people move that in the context of dysfunction, for most people, I really don't come away from my exam with that much most of the time. And so at the end of that, you know, and I, I can do a pretty thorough exam. At the end of that, people are like, wow, you did all that testing and you're telling me that there's not much going on, right? And I'm not, I'm not just telling people this because I want them to believe what I'm saying. My perspective over 25 years of what's dysfunctional and what makes up a, a pattern of physical dysfunction has really changed. And you can see when someone has a pattern of physical dysfunction on exam, it's clear, like it makes sense. But for most people, they don't have that. They have this sort of random assortment of things that don't really add up. And of course, as part of the physical exam, you're also building this evidence list based on their subjective history, right? What was going on in your life when the pain started? Was there an injury that was strong enough that it could have caused damage? You know, for most people, there's not. There was no clear mechanism of injury. Has it been more than six months, you know, or a year? Let's be generous. For a lot of people, it's been five years, 10 years. They've been struggling with pain. And so we know that the body heals itself. And so we're already beyond that, that time domain. And then we look at it, we look at the symptom behavior. We have this great list of symptom behaviors that points towards a dysregulated nervous system rather than a tissue damage problem. Provocative testing is something maybe you all use a lot. Having people visualize and imagine triggers, triggering activities or other fat things that trigger their symptoms and seeing by visualizing it, by imagining that, does it make your symptoms worse? And that tells us that that's your powerful brain doing that, right? That's You're just sitting in the chair and you're thinking about going home to your family for Christmas, for the holidays and your pain increases. Like, isn't that amazing? So great. So, you know, the, the evidence list can get pretty long to reinforce the case for talking about being a detective for, for why this is, and I hesitate to say the brain instead of the body, because all pain is from the brain, but are the tissues involved? And just to say one more thing on that, Laura, because I appreciated you saying like people notice that, okay, I can touch this spot, let's say on the rectum and it's like tender to touch. Doesn't that mean that there's something wrong? With that tissue and and you all do see probably that sometimes there is held muscle tension there this is john sarno's original tms idea that when the brain goes into danger alarm it gets the muscles tight to, to protect us and that limits blood or decreases blood flow and that makes pain and i'm not sure that's always the case right sometimes you're just palpating touching normal tissue there's nothing tense, there's nothing wrong, but the brain is misinterpreting that information as dangerous. And so the experience in the brain, it's hard to get your head around, right? The experience in the brain is that there's pain, that there's something wrong, but objectively the, the tissue is at its resting state. There's nothing wrong with it at all. And that—that that is, that is, I think, an important nuance for people because if they think, well, my muscles are really tight, that's still a physical problem. And so they can get really stuck on that idea that, well, we need to work on the muscles, the trigger points, you know, and, and that's still a body problem. And so I like people to understand that it's not always, just because you can touch it and it hurts doesn't mean there's something wrong with that local tissue. Right. The brain makes or a mistake. Be, yeah. Or just because it hurts, it doesn't mean it's tight. I get that a lot. Oh, my muscles are really tight because they hurt and I assess and I don't notice any tightness. And then they're like, so what's wrong with me? And you know, you mentioned that you'll go through the whole physical examination and there's not much to find. And that was what 
sort of had me questioning too when I started out as a PT. I'm doing all of these tests that they taught in school, range of motion, manual muscle testing, and all of the stuff, the special tests. And I'm like, man, I'm not really finding much here. And I'm sitting back like, is it me? Am I doing something wrong? Am I missing something? And then they're telling me about their stress and they're bringing up their mother. Mm -hmm. And then like, it's getting worse as I'm sitting here and I'm like, wait a minute, (laughs) something's Something is yeah. yeah yeah it's wild isn't it like I, I appreciate you saying that because as a clinician it's really we weren't trained to rule out so it's a real rare clinician that can evaluate the pelvic floor and and say this is normal your tissues feel okay there's nothing dysfunctional about your tissues because it's the opposite of how we were trained very opposite. <laughs> and we do learn about the biopsychosocial model. I don't know what it was for you, but for me, not that long ago, it was like a half semester, maybe just like a three week. I don't even remember how long. It was a pretty short class, but I remember sitting in that class thinking, why don't we have this all year? <laughs> because this seems like where it's at. Like this seems more real and legit to me than all of these testing things that we're learning. And- I think you're not alone. I've talked to a lot of physical therapy students that feel the same way, that really feel like they they would appreciate their program had more of that. So I hope that's changing as well. Uh, I didn't have any of that when I was in school. It wasn't even on the radar. So I'm impressed that you know you graduated eight years ago. That that's pretty early to be adopting those ideas. It's fantastic. I will say that one of my professors I just saw on LinkedIn the other day that she's working. Um, with uh, Joe Hada, and there's a catalyst now. It's not an official like niche group, but there's a catalyst group um, for mental health, like physical therapists in mental health. There's something mental health related, which is just another way of saying mind body to me. So I, I think we're moving in that direction and I hope to see programs in schools. Like I hope they expand this and I hope it becomes a bigger thing because it does need to be. We don't treat in this way. And I really think we're doing a disservice to a ton of our patients. Yeah, I think Joe Tata is doing a great job. You know, I really appreciate him advocating for this um, out in the world in a big way through the APTA and hopefully trickling down into PT school. I hope this is instated more into your programs as well. And I'm like, so thrilled that there's people like both of you out there because I would have maybe not have been stuck in pain for as long if I had a different perspective that there was something else going on with my body. Cause it took me a couple of years before I ran into people like you that explain that there might be something else going on with my pain. I guess I want to like to would love to know, because this comes up with my clients a lot of how you incorporate these physical therapy modalities with your mind-body therapy because, and specifically even stretching, because I'll give some of my clients different stretching routines to do. And they'll say, Laura, what are you doing? I thought you said this is from my brain. Why are we, you know, now focusing on my body? So I'm just curious how you incorporate all this. Yeah, I mean, remembering, I guess the first, the easy answer is very carefully. (laughs) with a really thoughtful intention. And, you know, I I find myself sometimes slipping back into my old, old ways and having to check that. 
and clarify for people why we're doing these things. And so this is part of the wrestling that I've had to do over time to reconcile. You know, the mind and body are connected and the pendulum, you know, in my mind has swung really far to the, to the brain, but we have this whole body that's really a proprioceptive organ, like our eyes or our ears. And what a powerful way to get into the brain, to the nervous system and create change, right? Through this big body suit that we have that has all these, these sensitive tissues. And so I sort of explain, try to explain it in that way, where we're talking about changing the nervous system from the bottom up. We know all the benefits of movement and exercise and being in your body and how that changes the brain, right? That science has been there forever. But just clarifying for people that we're not trying to fix something by by manipulating a joint or needling a trigger point, or you know, this is this is the way we can create change quickly. And and when people are in pain, we talk about how it's hard to learn. When people are in a lot of pain, we need something to get the pain level down more quickly. And and body work and movement is a great way to do that. That's the starting point. Then they can learn. Then they can do the emotional work, right? Then they can do the other things that we know are really helpful. So I find myself like talking about the homunculus. I don't know if you ever talk about the homunculus, but I think people really find that cool that the brain has like a, a, a representation of the body. And sometimes I'll show them what that looks like. And that by, and that the body, you know, the brain wants information from the world that makes it feel safe. You know, from the NOI group that when it doesn't get that, that part of the body gets smudged. It's like it's out of focus and, and the brain gets scared when it doesn't have a clear picture of that body part. So is it possible that by needling and scraping and massaging and moving, we're just clarifying the brain's representation of that part of the body. So, so it feels safe again. And this is where mirror therapy comes in and, you know, greater exposure and, you know, greater motor imagery. And, but, you know, there are so many different ways we can give input to the brain from the bottom up to get the brain to change. And I, I find it really exciting. You can get really creative with it. You can bring visualization into it. And I think generally it really resonates for people. Like they don't want us to stop talking about the body. We're physical therapists, right? They, that this is our specialty. So I'm really, I, I don't want to put that away. I think it's a really important niche that we feel in the mind body space that we can A, evaluate the body and rule it out, right? And B, we can intervene because we have a license to do so. And we can, we can, you know, really use this powerful modality in addition to the other stuff that we know works so well. But I'm curious to hear what, what you two think about, how you think about bottom-up interventions. Well, you know, even with stretching, for me, I like to stretch. It makes my body feel good. And it produces endorphins in my brain from moving. And it makes me feel, you know, it gives me like a rush of, you know, dopamine, oxytocin. And it actually then gives me a more relaxed way to approach my day when I start my day or end my day with stretching. And it just basically settles my nervous system. So anyone with these mind-body conditions, I promote movement and stretching just to, you know, release some of that cortisol that's, you know, built up. So I, I promote it and, you know, I, I promote physical therapy but I promote it more with people like you guys that have 
both all the approaches to go to. Well, and because everybody responds to a different modality, right? Like you respond really well to stretching. Mm-hmm. My next client that comes in the door might hate stretching. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to give that <laughs> give that to them. And so that's where it comes back to the idea of keeping it collaborative because you know, p- sometimes it drives me a little crazy that people talk about pain being really complicated or really complex. And I don't know how you feel, but I don't really find it to be that way. I just find that everybody needs a little bit of a different recipe, as Rachel's oftenest says, right? I feel like everybody needs something um, a little bit unique and everybody's journey is a little bit different. Everybody responds to different stuff. And as a clinician, it's my responsibility to remember that and not get into rules and not get into like, everybody should be stretching, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, because that gets me in trouble every time. Mm, Yeah. I think that's part of the reason why I do so many different things. Like if someone comes in and they're like, I'm into yoga or stretching or Pilates or running or whatever, I'm like, okay, let's figure out what your body needs to specifically um, feel a little bit better. So I am yoga certified. I am Pilates certified. I do. I used to run. I know I, I played a lot of different sports. So I can offer something for them, even if it's, I never exercise and it's like, okay, well, tell me about your day. And then it's just about getting those movements. To me, it's all just finding an embodied movement, a movement where they're in their body and their brain is getting to know their body and their body's getting to know their brain and they're, they're rebuilding that connection. And that's what I tell patients. We're not doing this because there's something wrong with you, this particular exercise. We're doing this to get your brain to know your body and your body to know your brain so that they work together because they should. It's my body. One word. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I guess my question is for both of you though. Now, how do you help a client that's afraid to move? when they're in pain or it's going to cause spark something, spark more pain. I think that's where guided motor imagery comes in, right? That's where I start. I go to the guided motor imagery and then we slowly, slowly start adding some, some movement and somatics. I start very slow with the basics as far away from the pain as we can. And then we slowly work closer and closer towards it. How do you do it, Charlie? Yeah, it's kind of different for everybody. Again, um, everybody responds differently, but if I use fear in any direction, is to scare people to start moving again. Like it's, we're done with rest that <laughs> we've rested enough. That's not going to get us anywhere. Okay. So I don't, I don't overtly use fear to motivate people to move necessarily, but I do want them to, I want to flip their worldview on this. Right. I want to, I want to flip it upside down and help them understand that movement is such an important part of overcoming symptoms. It's an important part of the healing process. If you've had an injury or surgery and I remind people like when you have a hip replacement, guess what they do on the first day, they get you up moving. You know, you just had your hip replaced. Like I can't think of a more invasive tissue damage injury problem. You know, people are like, Oh yeah, I never, never thought of that. Right. A year in two years in, you know, this is the point where movement is, is, is absolutely the way out of pain is absolutely the way through pain. And then everybody has to start with a different level. Some people are like, cool, green light. I'm ready to go. Let's do it. Other people need this like slower progression of, uh, of returning to movement, like more of a structured, thoughtful approach. And that's fine. You know, the, I always say like when I'm encouraging people to move, I say your tissues, your body is not the governor anymore. Your brain and your nervous system are the governor. And in that way, we don't know what the governor, where the governor is going to shut you down. And it's also kind of a moving target day to day. Today, the governor's here and tomorrow the governor's here. So allowing for the possibility that sometimes people make really quick 
jumps in their ability to be in their body. Sometimes people will surprise me mm-hmm. and they'll go from not moving very much to doing something a, a lot. I'm like, wow, good for you. Like, that's amazing that you're, you just shifted your belief and suddenly you're able to do this thing that you haven't been able to do for a long time. I drew this while we were talking. I don't know if you can see that. This is my flow chart. When people ask me, Charlie, should I do this? And this is what I ask them. Does it increase fear? Or does it decrease fear? Mm. This is my, this is my rule. That's <laughs> so, fantastic. Oh, simple. It reduces, <laughs> so simple, right? It reduces fear. Then yeah, let's give it a try. If it increases fear, then it's probably not going to be helpful. And that's true for, for body work too, right? Or for any intervention. So I, people sort of like that simple decision tree. Mm-hmm. And that takes away the whole use of like pain isn't complicated. I feel the same when it comes to like health or being healthy. It's really not that complicated. Eat well, sleep right, booze, drink water. You're good. <laughs> yeah, I love the simplicity of both of what you just said. You know, it, it doesn't have to be so complicated to do what's right for your body. And, you know, with movement, I don't know about both of you, but with pelvic pain, I find people, I can get them to move again using, you know, um, PRT, pain reprocessing therapy and noticing the fear. But what happens a lot is too, they have, they can go on their bike ride or they can do their jog or they could do things. And then the next day they'll have pain afterwards. So I don't know if that happens a lot with your clients as well. A lot. It's one of my favorite symptom behaviors with athletes is they'll see that they're fine dur- during the activity and then pain comes on in a delay. And of course, it's easy to make up stories about, well, you know, it was a delayed inflammation or, um, you know, delayed onset muscle soreness or they, they can, they usually, they usually, our clinician has, has made up a reason why that's happened. And, you know, we all three of us know that that's just a, a great symptom behavior pointing towards a dysregulated nervous system. Um, you know, the, the pelvic floor, I was just thinking like the pelvic floor pain and uh, is, is kind of unique. And then I find that it's almost one of the easiest types of pain to make meaning from. I don't know if you all have this experience, but I, one of the things I really try to do with people, I feel, I feel like it's important because I would want this, right? If I was struggling with pain and, and someone was telling me like, it's not this thing, it's not this diagnosis, it's not this thing that you've been, that you thought it was, I'd want to have another explanation or another point of meaning. And I really appreciate treating people with pelvic pain because I feel like it's easier to make that meaning. Do do you all find the same thing? Yes, absolutely. There's always, there's like a deeper meaning with, uh, with pelvic pain without a doubt. I don't know if you find that, uh, Canel. Yeah. I mean, if you want to get real, real into the spirituality of it, you know, that's where I'm looking at the chakras and I'm like, okay, is this sitting at the root? Is this the sacral? Is it the solar plexus? You know, because those are usually the common three that show up. And then I'm thinking about the emotions or what's going on in their lives, where specifically the pain is located, who might be involved in this story. You know, that's where I'm asking them the questions about like, tell me about your childhood. Tell me about your parents. What about your job? You know, I'm asking a lot of questions to them that's unrelated. Yeah. I want to learn more about that. I want you to say more about that. About the, about the chakras because I think that's just an, such a great way, right, to start to to get to these themes of making meaning. So maybe for another maybe for another time, definitely we'll another conversation. That. Yeah, and I believe that when I took the first time I learned about visceral manipulation, I I was think I'm sitting in the class thinking they're talking about chakras. 
right? Without saying chakras, because it's it's talking about what emotions live in different organs, right? What lives in the stomach, what lives in the spleen, what lives in the liver, what lives, you know, in this part of the body. And I'm like, this is absolutely the chakras. And then if you look at traditional Chinese medicine as well, you find the same thing. So it's out there. There is science, old science, and even new science to support that. And I don't know if anyone's really brought it together. I'm sure there is. People have taught me um, or told me about anatomical books that bring in like anatomy and spirituality and bring in Chinese medicine and all these different things mm -hmm. where it talks about the organs, the locations and what may be stuck in them. Um, so it's out there. The information is out there. It's just another thing to learn. But I think we've all sort of come across it at some point. And it's so true because I go to acupuncture every week and I tell my clients I go to acupuncture every week because I promote self-care quite a bit. And I believe that even when your pain isn't chronic anymore, there needs to be somewhat of a maintenance plan. You can't just go back to what you were doing. And if I go in and tell my acupuncturist, I'm so angry this happened, he'll go, I believe, and you guys could tell me more, right to my liver, I believe. And he'll be like, there you go. And he'll go, does this, this hurt? And I said, yes. So it's so true. There's such a meaning behind every emotion that we feel and where it shows up in the body. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. That could be a whole other topic. <laughs> Always so much to talk about. I, I'm a little curious, Canel, you know, your shift into talking about emotions. A lot of people are surprised to hear a physical therapist talking about emotions. And I had to be given a lot of permission, right, that that was okay by Howard Schubiner and other clinicians that were like, of course you have to do this. Like, my view is you can't treat pain without talking about emotions. And there shouldn't be a gatekeeper to who's talking about feelings because we're all human and we're all connected and I feel like we owe that to each other but I, I'm curious what was that a hard transition for you or it yeah. was it was a hard transition because although this was just me who I am it mm -hmm. I wasn't sure if I can bring that into physical therapy and I asked myself quite a bit like am I even allowed to do this how do I bill for this Who's going to like come at me and be like, this isn't physical therapy. Like who's going to come for me? <laughs> and that was a really big fear of mine. But once I started slowly incorporating and asking questions and I started to realize like, oh, wow, this is doing something. Then I just did it. <laughs> I was like, I don't care who's going to come from, like come for me. I'm helping people. Like no one's going to call me out on it. But I still think we have quite a bit of ways to go, but I'm no longer mm -hmm. afraid to, to step into this. I mean, I'm going to start a hypnotherapy training next month, which is usually for, you know, mental health professionals. But I feel like we belong in the space as well. If we are going to be treating pain and it does come from mental or emotional dysfunction. Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I think it's important for us, right, to embolden other clinicians to, to even start thinking about this. Doesn't mean they have to go, you know, as far as doing EMDR or, or trauma work, but to at least start helping people make the right connections and opening up the conversation because the mental health profession is never going to tell someone that their body's okay. And they're not going to usually connect the emotional content to the physical symptoms. So I think we have at least that responsibility to get people to that point. And then they can, you know, if they need more in deep work, they can go find that for themselves. But I really feel good about at least getting people to that point. Yeah. And that was one of the reasons why we wanted to do this, to just put it out there that we can treat in this way. Thank you. So why don't you share um, where people can find you if they want to connect with you or reach out to you for any reason? 
because I'm sure questions, more questions came up in people's minds <laughs> and they're curious to learn more. Sure. Yeah. I'm not hard to find. Um, my, my business is called Merrill Performance and my website is M Performance. My phone number is there. My email's there. Uh, people reach out all the time um, just directly to me. I'm a one man show. And so I'll probably be the one responding or answering the phone if you call. Um, I, uh, I'm on Instagram, just my name, Matt Charlie Merrill. Same with YouTube. I'd like to get back to doing more stuff on YouTube. I've been sort of immersed in Instagram. I'm 50 now, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a little, a little behind in terms of like being really good on all these platforms. But I'm doing my best, and I just built a course for athletes that I'm really excited about. That's 12 weeks um, long. It's immersive, experiential. It speaks specifically to that group. And uh, the first cohort starts January 7th. And so um, you can find that, the link to that website to learn more about it. Uh, my Linktree profile, which you get to through Instagram. Um, it's just my name again, if you want to search on Linktree or Charlie Merrill, and you'll find a link to the website, the landing page for the course. But um, I do discovery calls if people are curious and they just want to connect and talk about the course and if it's the right fit or about my practice, if it's the right fit. Um, I love connecting with people, talking with people, hearing their stories. It's just, you know, after 25 years of practice, you'd think that you'd be burnt out. And I feel exactly the opposite. It's just, as you both know, it's such an exciting time, hopeful time in the world of pain. And I'm happy to be here with you two doing this work, you know? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for being here with us today. I know for a fact that this is going to help so many people hearing it from you as a physical therapist and someone that is so, you know, well-known and versed in the, in the mind body world. So I thank you. And um, I'm so glad that there's people like you and Canel that, that understand this biopsychosocial model. So people aren't just, you know, pegged into one type of, of healing. So, you know, thank you for all that you both do. Thank you. Thanks for making space to talk about this. And I want to connect more with both of you offline. I'm looking forward to, to getting to know you a little bit better. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. If you'd like to leave us a message or ask a question, please check the show notes with the link so you can reach us directly or email us at beyondthepelvis at gmail.com. Thank you.